Welcome to Nourishing Matters to Chew On. I'm Anthea Fawcett. Join me on a journey across our food and agricultural landscapes as I speak with inspiring people who are tackling parts of the wicked puzzle to enable change toward a healthier, more sustainable, fair and resilient food system and environment. I acknowledge the traditional owners and custodians of the land on which this podcast is recorded throughout Australia and recognise their continuing connections to land, water and culture. I acknowledge that sovereignty has never been ceded and pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. Since 2006, when Laura Dalrymple and Grant Hilliard established the whole animal butchery, Feather and Bone, in Marrickville, they've been supporting and enabling uh, ethical producers to find exciting new markets and have also been nurturing communities of change in families and businesses to practice, support and help everyday us to be better ethical omnivores and to do so in ways that are delicious, eating by eating more nose to tail. And Grant and Laura have just opened a new store in Sydney, so I thought it was a really good excuse and a very nice reason to catch up with Laura and have a chat. Thanks so much. Oh, it's lovely to talk to you. Thank you so much. Laura, in 2020, you and Grant wrote and Murdoch Books published The Ethical Omnivore, A Practical Guide and 60 Nose-to-Tail Recipes for Sustainable Meat Eating. It's such a beautiful book. Thank you. I've got it right here with me. I have cooked quite a few of the recipes. Oh, great. It's, it's just an inspiration. I love it. Um, and I know when I spoke with Grant last year, he said, look, you know, we weren't, we, we weren't sure we wanted to do a recipe book, but we sort of found we had to, but we wanted to tell the story about, you know, and you do. It does quite a few things. It's not just a recipe book. A recipe book with a really coherent, rich and forward-looking backstory and story to throw forward within it thank you it's a really uh, rich book yeah so I just thought you know to kick off perhaps you might like to just you know share a little bit with us two years on from the book's publication how you feel it's been received and how it's tracking and what sort of feedback you've had well it's interesting you should say that um actually Elizabeth Farrelly said uh, said um when she reviewed it she said um it's what did she call it I just can't remember her words now but effectively what she was saying was it was a sort of a a mashup of different things you know that really shouldn't work because you know to have this sort of polemic polemic at the front and these essays and then these stories about farmers and then and then recipes in the back and the recipes of course um they're not I mean, they are recipes, but they're not our recipes, really. They're recipes from our community because we felt that that was the most legitimate and authentic way for us to talk about how to cook, you know, the, the products that we sell. Um, and, and we felt by far more interesting than us just sort of, you know, pondering along with our our recipes, the things that we cook, <laughs> favourites. It's so much more interesting to find out what other people do with your food. But it's interesting that you should raise the book now because it just so happens that this morning I was reading a review, actually in the Finn Review, of a new book by a woman called Jane Buxton. The Great Plant-Based Con, actually, is what she calls it. I know, how provocative is that? It's great. Can I hesitate a guess? Is she American? Actually, no, she's English. Oh, okay. And she's she's actually she's actually a a, a, a very well known sort of writer. She's been writing for twenty years plus. She's written all sorts of things. But she became very engaged with this whole idea of the demonising of meat. You know, it's the same old story. And and just I suppose you know the pandemic really kind of focused her mind on what it is that we're consuming. And she started to get to um, get wind of the various narratives and storylines around meat and what you should eat and what you shouldn't eat and so on. And I think she must, you know, she's she's probably, I don't know much about her, but 
I, th I think she's well known. Anyway, she could sort of sense that there was some obfuscation and some, you know, some pretty conscious manipulation of the facts in the stuff that she was hearing and the stuff that she was being, um, you know, receiving these fed, fed messages. That's right, exactly. Anyway, and so that prompted her to investigate. And once she started investigating, she started to get quite sort of irate about what, what she felt she was discovering, which was that there was huge manipulation of the facts at, at really, you know, all sorts of levels, including, you know, um, really reputable sort of organisations that really should should know otherwise. Anyway, the thing that I found curious is that, so she's written this book, which is basically coming to exactly the same conclusions that we came to, you know, and we presented in our book. And those were, our conclusions were formed after, you know, a decade of sort of, um, you know, working in the field and talking to lots of people and reading lots of stuff and gradually sort of accumulating a perspective on, partly on meat and the sort of our little corner of the food landscape, but really on the broader issues that affect people when they're trying to make decisions about what they should eat and how difficult it is to come to conclusions about where stuff comes from and, and what one should eat and how complicated it is. Anyway, but I was just thinking this morning, isn't it funny, you know, here's this person who comes to the same conclusions as we have who's just publishing a book now and it's really from a different angle, from a different perspective, that you know, the end point is the same in this journey. I feel like I'd like to publish my book now, you know, in a way, because I think now there's, you know, there's been an explosion in um, in interest and appetite for these sorts of messages over the last two years. We have been on such a steep learning curve, you know, globally in terms of issues about sustainability, issues about um uh, relating to climate change, issue, issues related to food security. Uh, you know, there are so many dimensions to this. And in the in the last two years, you know, a whole lot of pennies have dropped for people, I think, um, including the one, the really important and fundamental one, which lots and lots of people talk about now, this sort of awareness and recognition that everything is connected. So you can't talk about you know, food security without talking about education and you can't talk about education without talking about health and you can't talk about health without talking about, you know, energy security and you can't talk about energy security without talking about water. What happens is that the best solutions are holistic solutions that take into account all of the impacts of, you know, on all of these various sort of aspects of our lives. And it's a very different way of thinking from, you know, old world thinking, which is very much about we've well, got you energy over here and you've got education over here and you've got environment over here and you've got water over here and so on well you know that that idea is just um is not going to get us anywhere near solving the problems that we're facing so i think there's been there's just been such a, a sort of explosion of interest and understanding and i feel as though it's not that our book wasn't well received and that it wasn't um it wasn't a very gratifying and great experience but I feel it would almost be, people would almost be more ready for it now than two years ago. Uh, and there are so many books popping up now that are saying basically the stuff that we have said, which is wonderful. And, you know, hallelujah. Isn't it great? Isn't it wonderful? Yeah, but I think yours is a foundational one. And I think that all just suggests that there's an incredible opportunity for a compendium or a, 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 a new book. <laughs> because so much of what you talk about, exactly as you say, um, you know, I mean, I've spoken with Matthew Evans about his book on eating meat and also um, on soils. Mm. And he's great. 
the systems, connections and linkages and so forth. And what I love about On Eating Meat is that he makes the case for it's not about meat or plants, it's about scale and impact. That's it. Absolutely. We, we could talk about that for hours, but thank you for so, for so eloquently summing that up because exactly. it's not either or, it's about what scale <laughs> and how, how connected to place and, you know, systems connections locally and regionally and uh, within the greater system. So, so thank you for that. Absolutely. Mm. Okay, well, I'm going to hope for um, new books soon. And, and something else that Ms. Elizabeth Farrelly also said was that it was a book that should not be missed. Oh, yes. Well, she was very kind, I must say. I think, I think that um, that's interesting, you know, because the other, another, another interesting sort of aspect of this, I think, is that, and, and this is a change that's occurred that I've noticed, is that until fairly recently, um, intellectuals didn't really rate food as a topic that one should take seriously mm. um, because, because although, I mean, that, of course, is a generalisation, but a lot of, you know, a lot of people who consider themselves to be, uh, you know. No, but as an industry sector to take seriously, I completely agree. Yeah, yeah. That's it, completely. And it was always considered, you know, well, that's the province of celebrity chefs and, you know. Trendies. Sort of light. That was light and trendy and whatever. Yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. that's right, exactly. Which isn't to say that those people didn't appreciate beautiful food and beautiful wine, but they didn't really think that food was, you know, had the capacity to change the world, which I believe it does. And there's a wonderful writer called uh, Carolyn Steele, who is an English academic, and she has written a couple of really superb books about her, and this is where I think, this is what I think happened to Elizabeth Farrelly as well, this sort of, um, you know, this, this revelation, this moment of clarity around the power of food. So Carolyn Steele wrote this book called Cytopia, and it's just a really lovely sort of discussion of the transformative nature of food in society. And I think that Elizabeth Farrelly also, I mean, I shouldn't really talk about it like this, should I? If she's listening, <laughs> uh, but, you know, she, she, she had a revelation around, around the, the impact of agriculture and the connections between, you know, what agriculture really represented. And because, as you know, she's a, she's a, very, um, a very respected and formidable sort of advocate for, uh, for much more progressive and community-based social planning, urban planning. You know, she's a she's an incredible advocate for, for better ways of thinking about how we live in our cities, and that extended out to her idea of agriculture as well. And she's yeah. very interesting on that stuff. So, I think she felt that what we were saying, you know, it really resonated yeah. with where she was, her thinking was going. So, and so I love it when I see uh, those people who are in these, you know, who occupy this sort of rarefied intellectual circles when they all when they penny drops and they get really excited about food because it is political you know it's powerful certainly is <laughs> about this time last year I spoke with Grant and um, with veterinarian Kate Wingett about eating nose to tail and specifically we zoomed in on the the nutrition and health benefits um, respecting all of the animal which of course is core to what you do challenges to the broader industry in terms of in terms of awful waste and um, failure to really value at or appropriately value awful yes um, and make best use of all of the animal all of the animal is used but much of it goes to pet food or it's exported overseas yeah and and that conversation flowed on from from earlier conversations uh, with Matthew Evans and Professor Robin Alders on Matthew's wonderful book on eating meat which we've just uh, referred to mm. um, it's all interconnected obviously and you're all part of a 
a really amazing community of change. And here we are in mid-22, out of lockdown. Many things are opening up. People are travelling interstate and overseas again, I hear. I hear. <laughs> Can you imagine? Oh, my God, yes. And, and Feather and Bone have opened their second store in Waverley in Sydney, which is just you know, which is just lovely. I must say, when I saw that, I thought, oh, you know, I felt very parochial. I thought, I'm closer closer to me. I'm, I'm going to become a regular. <laughs> Tell me all about your new store. Why have you moved to Waverley? And what's new about this store? Or is it more of the same? Or Tell me about the store, the what, the where and the why. It is more of the same, I'm afraid. <laughs> nothing nothing particularly new. But we, um, you know, as, as we discussed in our book and as we've talked about a lot, we are very interested in the idea of community and we discovered really, and we can't really take uh, much credit for this because it was really one of those duh sort of moments, you know, where we suddenly realised that we were you know, having done, squirreled away at what we were doing for quite a long time, we just, we sort of, when we started uh, writing, particularly it happened during the writing of the book or, or around the time of thinking about writing the book, because we were thinking about, you know, these communities of, if you think about it, it starts with communities of creatures in the soil and then there's communities of creatures, you know, insects and so on. And, and it's all about these interconnected networks of communities of things, you know, operating in, in opposition and, and in collusion with each other. And that's what life is. But we hadn't really thought about it much in relation to people, except, of course, in relation to the communities, mm. the rural communities uh, which the farmers we deal with are part of. And so we'd sort of thought about it in an abstract way, but we hadn't really thought much about urban communities um, because our focus is always so external. But what we realised in writing the book with great joy and, um, and pleasure was that we are actually part of a community. And over the years, a community has grown up around us and we have, mm. you know, grown up around it and it's this wonderful thing. And it gives us enormous mm. joy to have people come in and then they have babies and then their babies come in and then their kids grow up a little bit and, you know, and then you discover that you've got all these people in common. It's just gorgeous, you know. It's really, really delightful and incredibly, um, incredibly nurturing nourishing, I suppose. Anyway, so people are parochial and communities, um, local communities are necessarily and appropriately quite small. And so unless you're sighted in a community, you can't really have all of those beautiful connections and experiences. As we all discovered during the pandemic, you can order online and you can have, you know, you could, we ran a successful online business during, during the pandemic and that was very necessary and important and so on. But it's not the same as talking to people. And, and for some people that's fine, but for us, I suppose, it's very enriching to have those contacts with people. So, so we thought, well, we used to have a lot of customers in the East and we know that there's a real interest in what we do in the East. And, um, and so it seemed very logical for us to find a location over in the East of Sydney to go and plonk ourselves in the middle of a, a little village, which is what that little Charing Cross Bronte Road is and see if we couldn't sort of join in and become part of that community there. So that's that's what we're trying to do. Growth of the business, but actually it sounds as though more about grow, growing a bigger community. Well, it is that because that's what's interesting and that's what I was saying before. It's so interesting because our, our Marrickville location is not on a high street. So people have to make a decision to come to us. They either have to know about us or they're mm. wanting to find out or they don't happen on us. Now, we're on a high street in Waverley and so while there are lots of people who are 
Um, we've had a really warm and lovely welcome from people who know about us and who are glad that we've moved into their neighbourhood because it makes it easier for them to, to, you know, to use us and to come to us. But there's also lots of people who just have, are passing by, have never heard of us and come in for a sticky and it's great, great. So then you find yourself having these chats with people and explaining who you are and why you do what you do and trying to work out how you can engage these people in, in, in our story, you know. And, um, and it's very, it's a really lovely exercise. Yeah. And not everybody is into it, obviously. You know, some people, it's not their thing. I think that people, people are always looking for engagement in something that's meaningful. You know, and if it resonates with them, then they, they get excited about it. So anyway, yeah, it's fun. It's really good fun. That's very exciting. So does that mean you're spending more time at the Waverley? Yes. Mm, at the moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Necessarily, necessarily. It's important, you know, we, we, it's important to be there and, and have those conversations. And, and in terms of your um, overall business, I, I mean, you've done this amazing thing, nurturing a whole community of sustainable or ethical small to medium scale producers across different livestock um, species <laughs> and I think initially the business was quite focused on restaurants on wholesale supply to restaurants and Grant mentioned that that had changed and you're quite happy about that yeah it, has that change continued or do you find post-COVID and restaurants getting going again you're, you're the, the mix is uh, going back to a bit more of a restaurant consumer mix uh, definitely yeah yeah obviously uh during during the pandemic i mean we found that over the last probably the last sort of 7 years or so the uh the restaurant the number of restaurant customers has decreased mm. i think that's a whole range of reasons they're probably getting their own direct supply chain increasingly increasingly people are yeah it's very interesting actually increasingly people go direct to farmers but also but that doesn't always work for everybody because you know depending on what kind of a farmer it is and what kind of a chef you know restaurant it is you know they can or can't cope with you know it, it's more work anyway it doesn't work for everybody where it does work where it does work and it benefits the farmer and the the, um, the business they're dealing directly with, then, you know, all power to them. It's a great, particularly for the farmer, obviously, the more direct the connection can be, the better. And so, you know, I, we think that's, that's wonderful, mm. you know. Ideally, farmers should be selling as locally as possible and then if they're going further afield, if they can manage those relationships directly, then that's fantastic. But not every farmer can grow their produce, manage their farm, manage logistics, manage marketing, manage relationships, you know, do the accounting, do the invoice. Like it's a lot. It's a lot. And there are, you know, I think a lot of farmers feel strongly about the need to be in charge of their own destiny and manage that supply chain and, and be in total control of every 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 step of the chain. You know, there have been many instances where people have tried to do that and then been overwhelmed by how hard it is. It's just who can not many people in any situation can do all of those things. Yeah. That's what we're here for. But just going back to your question, so in terms of the balance, it's absolutely true that during during COVID, obviously the restaurants closed, or not all restaurants, but most restaurants closed. Some some changed format slightly, and all of the events that we do, things like butchering classes and you know renting the spits with the animals and all that sort of stuff, that all disappeared. So we became we became absolutely a full time retail business. And since um, you know since restaurants have opened up again, we find 
uh, I think the restaurant landscape has changed as well. There are probably fewer restaurants. And then the ones that are working with us have made a very specific decision to tell a story and to support you know, particular kind of production because they see that it benefits their business. So they really want to engage with that story. So they're quite committed and that's been great because working with us and the farmers we represent isn't always straightforward because, you know, there are seasonal changes, there are size changes, there are variations. Sometimes a thing doesn't even turn up, you know, like, and you have to be prepared to accommodate, you know, those variations. So the retail thing is you know, it's great. We love it. And with the, the mix of restaurants and retail and, as you say, La Nina seasons, challenges for all sorts of producers. I mean, La Nina's been really tough on the food food supply chain. Mm, very. With all of those changes, what sorts of meats are most popular? Has that pretty much stayed fairly similar or has there been a change in demand for smaller animals, bigger animals? I mean, I think of you particularly leading the way on pork that's just my response to the perhaps there's a pig on the front of the book um but also also what you do with chickens amazing uh special species meat chickens and those lovely producers you often share the story of those no i think i think you're right well you know chicken is the most popular meat in australia and has been for some time and that's not changing that's just meat uh, chicken is becoming more and more and more popular so chicken there's a huge demand for chicken i don't really think there has i think that people during covid people cooked a lot obviously and so it was lovely to see uh people having more time to experiment and and use secondary cuts and you know so there was there was probably more experimental cooking because people had more time that's interesting i mean there definitely was more experimental cooking with across across the board of baking and the clichés about sourdough but certainly with slow cooking and meat i actually was going to ask you what what are your what are your tips for the you know for this season for you know the week deep in winter season obviously slow cooking gorgeous for for winter but also with cost of living prices the lovely sausages and minces that you make mm. that have a lot of off, have a lot of highly nutritious offal in them is the cost of living and the cost of meat cutting in on what people are choosing? I haven't seen anything just yet. I think it's been because it's been such a strange period of time too because we had, first of all, we sort of, you know, semi came out of the pandemic. I mean, actually, you know, COVID is still a really, really big thing. Anybody who runs a business or anybody who does anything actually will tell you that, I mean, yeah. at any given time, you'll have half a dozen people, you know, who who are sick with COVID. You know, I mean, trying to run a business is absolutely a nightmare because there is always somebody who's off sick. It's just with one thing or another. It, it really is. And trying to run events, trying to do functions, it's just, it's really, really tricky. But in terms of, of what people are uh, cooking and whether or not there's a response to the, I don't know, you know, we had we kind of eased out of all the restrictions and so on and then uh, but there was still a great sense of unease and and caution I think in the general community because after what we've been through over the last couple of years you know fire flood pandemic you know it's just been disastrous and people are you know they're a bit bruised and sore and careful and cautious so I think people sort of emerged out of the lockdown period feeling just a little bit wary and then we went into the sort of election cycle you know and of course everybody you know pulled their heads in during all of that so all of that's been going on for months and months and months now 
now that um, you know climate change mitigation, you know now that climate change is is actually you know you're allowed to talk about it and it's you know you're allowed to do something about it and everyone's madly rushing to try to fix all the problems. It, there's you know everybody's terrified. It's just the petrol prices are going up, the cost of living. So it's sort of it's not as though there's been a sudden shift. Oh, the cost of living's gone up and everybody's going to pull in. I think this has been a long term a long term sort of caution cautioning and and people just think a bit harder about what they do which is really tricky so just now for example today we received two separate notifications from a pig producer and a beef producer and both of them are increasing their prices by you know 10 percent we're stuck in the middle do we pass that on do we not pass that on Hmm. we run very you know very small margins as it is because of the kind of producers we work with customers have a tolerance, a price tolerance, and you've got to be careful how you manage that. Mm. But it's really, a lot of it's about diesel, you know, the cost of transport. So I don't know. It's a bit of a wait and see. It is. It's a journey in progress that probably will go on for quite a while, hopefully not too painfully. I was going to ask you, how have some of your smaller or medium, you know, how have your suppliers, how have they done as businesses during COVID and, and how are they coping now with La Nina and as you and fuel prices, I was going to mention, but have, have my, let me put it another way: have most of them survived? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, well, that's good news. That's yeah, good. we've been. I mean, look, we've been incredibly. I think we've been incredibly lucky, and we were, you know, during the over the last two years in the lockdowns, um, we were able to continue our business and continue buying from those those suppliers because of the online orders because of our retail. Um, market and and of course that that was good for everybody Um, and because our supply chains are so short and very very direct issues that other people were having with disrupted supply chains just didn't affect us so we've been secure and and everything's been continuing really very smoothly for the last couple It, it is getting a little bit harder for you know for for farmers now so this this i'm talking about livestock farmers um, farmers who are who are growing crops have had a horrendous time. You know, it's been really, really difficult, um, as you know, because of all the rains and so on. But for, you know, you mentioned the Summerlad farmers um, at Grassland Poultry near Wellington, for example. I mean, they've had they've had just a riotously good season because the after you know years of years of difficult um, conditions, mm. it's rained pretty continuously now for you know at least sort of eighteen months or something, and so their chickens and their cattle are, are, are doing brilliantly. You know, we've had, there have been some problems because of the floods. So the buffalo farmers we work with up north, up in the northern north coast of New South Wales, I mean, they had some trouble because they got they got flooded in at one point and, and there were some scary periods where the buffalo were stuck, you know, in a, in a flooded uh, field. Um, but largely they've, they've done fine. They've done really fine. But friends of ours who work with, with farmers who are either have mixed farming um, systems or, or run cropping operations. I mean, it's been, depending on where you're located, you know, it's such a big country, even New South Wales, it's fast, you know, so the conditions are different wherever you go. But that, but, but, but I think, as I said, you know, as I said, we just this morning received two notifications of price rises and that's really, and, and the explanations are around, 
around the cost of logistics, which isn't anything they can help on their farm, really. Yeah, yeah, as you say, it's a huge country and you, you source from across the state um, fairly broadly, don't you? Um, and, and probably only some of your producers are in um, the floods, the immediate flood zones, but La Nina and the, yeah. the large freight, larger freight costs out west and so on. Just moving on to talk about some of the wonderful other uh, community <laughs> community uh, building events and activities that you do. You're, you're a graphic designer by training originally and you've got a, a lovely uh, turn of phrase and uh, beautiful graphic sensibility in your beautiful newsletters and um, and you run classes and workshops and talks and host talks with people like Jade from um, uh, Future Steading. Sadly, we had that we that that was that talk, which would have been so lovely, was a victim of COVID. Anyway, yeah, that's right. Yeah. All right. I was just going to ask you, what about um, you know going forward, <laughs> living with COVID? Would you like to talk about the, the, some of the classes, the workshops, the events that you do? Will you, do you envisage you, you might be doing more of those? Yes, absolutely. So, yeah. So we've started our classes, our butchery classes again, and they're fantastic. They're great fun, and they get. You know, there's a there's a lot of demand for them, which is really nice, and I think probably a little bit of pent up demand, given the fact that no one could do anything for so long. We we kept, we didn't run any for a couple of years, um, so we're back doing those. They happen every couple of weeks at Marrickville, um, and we, you know, we have every intention of doing more of those sorts of events because, um, as much as anything, as much as we're a, a business which is you know, transactional in that we, we're buying something and selling something. We're also um, fundamentally concerned with sharing stories and information and all of us and enriching, you know, ourselves and others along the way. So those events are, I mean, A, they're great fun and it gets boring after a while if you don't do things like that. You have to do things like that to keep things interesting. Uh, but also you learn a lot. So <laughs> uh, so we've got a couple of, so one of the one of the things about the Waverley shop is it's, it's intended to be like a little mini event space as well. It's a butchery. There's a really lovely table um, at the front of the shop, which is sort of counterintuitive in a butcher's shop. It really should just all be display counters of meat, you know, but instead we've given over the front of the shop to this area which has this table in it which is fun actually it's a it's a recycled concrete table or to, with a terrazzo, ter, recycled concrete terrazzo top into which are laid the shin bones of animals that we've that have passed through our butchery so the little osso booker bones so really little ones for goats or and bigger ones for some lambs and then bigger ones for the beef or the veal and so they're they're sort of set into the concrete on the top with this pattern and um and that sort of speaks to our interest in engaging people around, well, here's another use for this thing that, you know, you might also consume into your body. You can also sit and eat at the table with these things. So we, what we want to do, well, what we're, we're, we have started doing actually is a program of events in the evenings there where we get farmers to come in and talk and invite people to come and have a listen, have a glass of wine, try some of the food. Uh, so a couple of weeks ago we had... Um, Kim and Brian Kiss from Grasslands Poultry, who grow the summer lad chickens, they came down from Wellington and very kindly did um, a couple of sessions there. It was really lovely and it's a lovely little space. It's, it's small, but it's a nice, warm, comfortable space to be in. So we're planning a whole lot of those at the moment. I'm putting the schedule of events together and I think it'll be fun so people can just come and, yeah, 
idea. That sounds fantastic. We're, my colleagues and I were talking, were thinking about doing something a little similar about um, uh, farmers in the pub, but I, I think we'll just come to you. <laughs> come to us, that's right. And I'd like to get, you know, that's the kind of thing that Jade might want to come to or, you know, there are lots of, there are so many interesting people in this space doing interesting things. So, mm. And just to just to pick up on what you were saying, then you're doing more of those courses. I'm not, I'm not sure if listeners caught that. They're butchery courses. So you're bringing on a whole new generation of artisanal, traditional butchers. Is that right? We like to think that in our... Um, not traditional, forward-looking butchery, I should say. No, it is traditional, actually. It's sort of back to the future if you like, you know. So the classes that we run are classes for anybody who wants to come along and do them, you know. So then it's, and when I say a course, it's not like a, a six-week course, training course. Qualification, no, yeah. Or a qualification, no, no. We we have enough on our plates. We couldn't enter into that. Um, no, no, they're, they're opportunities for people who want to learn more about uh, where meat comes from and, and how to prepare it and how to engage with it. So when people arrive, so so it's generally customers or anybody who's interested in the experience and wants to learn more. You know, sometimes it's groups of people who come or family groups or a bunch of mates or just a whole lot of individual sort of different people who come together. Well, they're about 12 in a class and they arrive and they um, and the first thing we do is take them into the cool room where all the carcasses are hanging, which is quite a it's quite a confronting experience if you haven't spent much time around, you know, animals and and dead animals. And so, um, but the important thing about uh, about the carcasses, you know, it brings you it brings you right up against the truth of what you do when you eat meat, and that's really at the heart of our business. We want people to to tackle that come to terms with it, have an understanding about it, have a context for it, and then you can make really informed decisions about how you engage with it. So starting in the core room is really important and, and, and you can have really fascinating conversations about, you know, why something looks the way it does and, you know, what does that, what does that colour of fat mean and what does the condition of that carcass mean and what does that tell you about the season, what does it tell you about the place, what does it tell you about the farming practice. So by the time they go through the other side of the cool room and into the production space to actually start working on butchering, they've got a context for all this meat. So it's really, you know, it really sort of it hopefully is more meaningful and then you get into the practice so there's a demonstration and then you get you do it yourself so we do um, various different um, butchery classes there's a sausage making class so they're great fun and it's very interesting to see how you know what people take out of it and and how they you know people often and then there's a barbecue afterwards you stand around and you talk about what you learned and what you think and why you do it so there's lots of sort of storytelling at the end as well it's very nice that's amazing that's fascinating so that's those classes which is a little bit different as i say from the from the sessions that we do that we're planning to do which are much more about you know, hearing from people. Actually, just to just to follow up another thing you said about us, artists and butchery, you've read our book, so you'll know there's a whole chapter on butchery in the book. It's about how we are actually losing the skill of butchery. So very few people, so very few butchers run a, a, an exclusively a whole animal practice. And what that means is butchers don't get the opportunity to break whole animals. So butchers might, during a TAFE course, for example, you know, learn in one in one module how to break an animal but if you don't practice that on a day-to-day -day basis you know in your in your work you don't 
gain that skill. And you also, as a butcher, lose the connection and the context of where the meat is coming from, the shape of the whole animal, the feel of the whole animal. Every time you deal with the whole animal, you're learning a lot about where it comes from and, and that season and how it was grown and the condition of the beast and so many other things that, that the whole structure will tell you. All of those things. Yeah, that's what I was picking up on. Yeah. All of those things, exactly. And the extraordinary skill. Um, I'm always absolutely sort of in awe of the way a butcher can look at an animal, a skilled butcher can look at an animal, and they know exactly where to penetrate. They know exactly where the lines between the muscles are. And it's it's this fluid, beautiful, elegant thing when they when they pull a, a body down. And it's sort of like a like a sculptor, you know, looking at a piece of stone and imagining you know, what that stone could yield and being able to fashion that out of the stone. And I think it's it really is. And uh, so I suppose in our butchery, we are, you know, we are working with our butchers to, to maintain and keep that sort of craft of whole animal butchery going. I was going to say alive, but that doesn't really seem like the right word to use in this. Yeah, keep, keep that um, deep tradition, uh, healthy and alive for the future. And also, yeah, I, I was really fascinated from my chat with Grant. He, he mentioned, you know, obviously to you, no news, but news to me, um, that, you know, that the that various parts of the offal um, have to be really carefully butchered and their freshness and their healthiness, you know, that, that the offal often requires a shorter shelf life and um, it has to be eaten fairly quickly or, or or cared for very particularly and differently to how the muscle yes. has to be cared for. Yes. I thought that was really interesting. Mm. Well, if you think about it, you know, those... Mm. It is interesting, but if you think about it, these organs, and we have exactly the same organs in our body, you know, they've got a really specific purpose. They're filtering and managing, you know, and so they're not, they're not, it's muscles do the heavy work, but these organs have a really particular task. You know, their job is exclusively to make sure that they filter out the good things and keep the, you know, filter out the bad things, keep the good things, process certain chemicals in, in our system, um, they're really particular workers in in the body, and um, and so I think that it's when I think about it that way, it makes more sense to me that they will be a little bit more fragile mm. because they're not they're not moving moving you around or anything like that. You know, they don't have to be robust the way the other the other muscles, the other parts of the body do. Laura, I think I asked Grant this, and I have to ask you too. What are your favourite offal cuts? First, personally, I really like tongue. I think tongue is absolutely delicious. I know <laughs> it's it, okay. it, it, it's in some ways the most confronting of the organs because it's, I mean, all you have to do is think about your own tongue in your mouth to feel quite squeamish about the whole thing. But I think tongue is really, really delicious, whether it's a big sort of, you know, poached beef tongue or whether it's a delicate little lamb's tongue, and that makes it sound even worse. But, you know, it, I think tongue is really delicious. And I really like heart. I think heart is also really, really delicious. Heart is the most sort of muscle-like of, of those those organs um, and mm. I think it's really delicious. I have to be really honest and, you know, I can't really eat kidney. I just can't do it. I know I should and, you know, and I do eat a bit of it in other things but I, I'm, I can't do kidney. And yet that's the one that most people are perhaps uh, step change most familiar with. Yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, there you go. Yeah, yeah. I, I I grew up in a family where we had lots of cold tongues. So oh, okay. Oh, so you probably don't like it. Maybe it was. Maybe you did. <laughs> no, and th- and that may be a reflection on my mother's cooking. It could just maybe maybe in the brat. <laughs> uh, I was going to ask you towards a bit of a wrap up. Are there any special events coming up that you're running, and or perhaps that you and or Grant are participating in? As you say, there's this space is proliferating, uh, and you and Grant are, are, are much called upon. Are there events that you're looking forward to? Well, do you know, there isn't really at the moment, we've been so focused on getting the new shop up. So there isn't really anything. And just also, you know, there has, as I said before, there's been so much going on in the in the general ether, you know, in terms of, you know, there's been the election and there's been sort of all these other things. And because we, I mean, we don't have a book out at the moment, so we're not doing that sort of schedule. So we've really been kind of keeping a bit of a low profile and just focusing on on the business and what we need to do with the business at the moment. But we are due, we've got, oh, look, we've got various things sort of in the pipeline coming up. Our newsletter is the place to to find out about those things. And, Laura, where, where do people subscribe? Tell, tell us where we go and subscribe for your newsletter. Um, on our website is the best place to go. It's on the on the front page, which is featherandbone.com.au. I, I love your newsletter. It's it's uh, rich and rich and warm. Thank you. <laughs> and and ditto for your for the events, you know, the with farmer in conversations in around that concrete table. Yes, yes. Uh, go to the website. And you've already mentioned some some of the lovely books you've been reading. And I know you're a you're, you're a prolific reader by the sound of things, along with Alana Mann. And it was at her book launch that you um uh, her, her book launch, her wonderful book, Food in a Changing Climate, that you interviewed her, and that was that was such a great conversation. That's right. Further to the books you've already mentioned, are there any others you'd like to um, give, give us a heads up that perhaps we could go and read? Oh, well, I've just read um, uh, Switched, which isn't to do with farming and food necessarily, but it's a long, but it's certainly connected. As I said, Caroline Steele's book, or Caroline Steele's book, Cytopia, was 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 probably the most interesting. Oh, I tell you what, I have read recently, which I found absolutely powerful, really powerful, and really fascinating, is The Winter Road by Kate Holden. The Winter Road is a very powerful book about what's driving land clearing in northern New South Wales. And that was a fascinating book because she's so clever. It's such a clever book because she tells the story of a murder um, on a farm um, and it's the murder of um, an environmental caseworker. He's a public servant and he's legitimised by his role and the the organisation he works for, but he's the one who has to go out and check and see whether people are doing the right thing on their farms. And farmers don't like that. They feel that this is their farm, they should be allowed to do what they want. I mean, not all farmers, but anyway, that's this story. And this it's the story of the escalating tensions and it's an absolutely fascinating story and a lot of people listening will possibly remember how this fellow was murdered one winter's night but what she does so cleverly is alongside this story that she tells you know like a journalist telling this this fascinating story of this event and going into all the different chapters of the of the story and how how it how it rolled out and what happened after he died and so on Um, what she also does is in parallel she runs basically the history of the environmental movement in australia you know, from its inception, really, and how how those two those two stories kind of come together and weave and go apart, and and the impact the one had on the other, and how policy was 
developed. It's absolutely, she's, she's really done a wonderful job. And so you get this fantastic history of the environmental movement in Australia alongside this really powerful, you know, personal tragedy. For me, I've spent the last 15 years scratching my head because every time I go to see one of these farms, the thing that I have found well, the thing that I found so mesmerising or so so uh, perplexing really is the word for all these years is, you know, we'll go out and we'll visit these farmers um, on their extraordinary regenerative farms and you can see the impact of their work. Um, and, you know, in some cases we've been visiting these farms for 10 years in different seasons at different times. Throughout, surrounding, surrounding farms invariably just persevere doggedly with a conventional model, you know, and it is a punishing sort of regime and things are getting harder and harder and harder for those conventional farmers. You know, mental health is going through the roof. It is. You can see the difference between farms. Well, you can see the difference. That's what I'm saying. And you see it. And I, I would say to the farmers we work with and why don't your neighbours see what you're doing? Why don't they jump on the bandwagon? Why don't they adopt some of these practices? Like, isn't it like if, if it was just talk, it would be one thing, but they can see the evidence there, literally, season, season in, season out. But people don't, and I, it has, it is just absolutely perplexing to me that that this resistance to change, even when the evidence is in front of you, and um, and I think this book, The Winter's Road, Kate Holden's book, really does go some way towards answering that question because that's exactly what she's exploring in, in, the, in the story of this tragedy. It's fascinating. So there you go. There's a good review. <laughs> read, go and read that one. I heard her on ABC Radio and it's also from northern New South Wales, which part of the world that I grew up in. And, um, I mean, just in terms of drawing this conversation to a close, perhaps it's fascinating because there's all sorts of changes around language, yeah. regulation and let's not go there. but but what really struck me about that her interview on the ABC about her book was that this was all about a guy who knew he wasn't meant to clear his land, but he but he was trying to um, value value grab uh, to transition from grazing land or protected bushland to farmland or cropping land. And for those of us who think that there's no cost of uh, it, you know the whole plant based uh, transplantationization of our landscape. It's a classic vignette of, of uh, landscapes for animals and landscapes for farming. and That's a good point. Yeah, absolutely. What should be where. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> Laura, any, any final comments or things, you, you know, people you might like to acknowledge or, or call outs or anything else you'd like to add? Mm. Well, um, I'm always happy to call out Matthew because Matthew Evans, because he continues to work, you know, tirelessly. He's been doing, he and Sadie, his partner, have been doing amazing work at Fat Pig Farm for many years. But, um, you know, Matthew recently joined uh, Farmers for Climate Action and he's been very public about that. He's, uh, his book Soil has done brilliantly and if your audience hasn't read it, they must go out and read it now. And I just think he's a great advocate for all of these issues. So, and he's a great, they're great people. So I'm always really happy to promote them. As I said, I've kind of had my head down and bum up in the last few months. So I'm not really, I don't know quite what else I would talk. There probably is something, but I, I can't think of it now. Put it in the newsletter when I think of it. Okay, then. Thank you, Laura. Thanks so much. It's been so lovely to catch up with you. It's a great pleasure.
Thank you, Athea. I've been speaking with the lovely Laura Dalrymple, who is the co-owner and creator of Feather and Bone Butchery and co-author of the beautiful book. If you haven't read it already, make sure you get your hands on a copy of The Ethical Omnivore. Thanks, Laura. Pleasure. Thank you. Bye. Thanks for listening. To listen to more episodes of Nourishing Matters to Chew On, head to Foodswell's podcast page at foodswell.org.au backslash nourishing or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and stay in touch via instagram at nourishing underscore matters and on facebook at nourishing matters to chew on if you like what you hear and would like to support us give us a rating and a review in your favorite podcast app so other people can find us too 